Wolf, get away from those sheep. Bollocks. You're listening to the Wolf and the Shepherd podcast. Broadcasting from Fort Worth in the great state of Texas. Now, get ready for this episode of The Wolf and the Shepherd. Welcome to this episode of The Wolf and the Shepherd. Today, we have with us Eddie Bedrina. Eddie, so glad you could join us today. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Super excited to be here. So, Eddie, farming has been in existence since the first Stone Age man took a poop and then noticed a couple of weeks later there was a seedling growing out of his poo. Right. Now, that's, that's like, how it started. Yeah. That, now, that is how it yeah. started. <laughs> so you were, you were there too when that happened, weren't um, you? Because you're an old man. No, I was there like a bit after that. Oh, just a couple a of generations. Yeah, they'd, yeah. yeah, they'd got the wheel by then. Oh, um, okay. But farming methods haven't really changed too much worldwide in yeah. hundreds of thousands of years but you would think given that we're trying to feed the world's population that there might have been a little bit more focus in improving farm methods but it's only really the last maybe decade where people have really started coming up with alternate methods to traditional farming and this is something which you're kind of an expert on and you've got a whole new look and a new take to how we can make farming more efficient Uh, more cost effective and actually feed more mouths for less money. Yeah. You know, uh, I would say necessity uh, is the mother of all invention, right? And so uh, the Dutch actually have done a good job of, of uh, working on alternative farming methods only because uh, they were landlocked. And then there's this constant flooding that takes place in the Netherlands uh, and so they've really had to, uh, they've been the leaders in what I would say is greenhouse kind of hydroponic farming, which is what we do. And I can unpack all of that. Uh, but really why you've seen just the latest trend in indoor farming or vertical farming or greenhouse farming, there's all sorts of uh, different types of alternatives is because the, the necessity is we've got uh, more volatile weather patterns. We've got uh, just environmental change uh, and then also consumer demands. Like, honestly, if I were to tell my wife, hey, for six months out of the years, you cannot buy strawberries. I mean, I might have a full on family riot in my house, right? So there's just this demand for year round consistent produce and not just produce, but food in general, right? So seasonality in the minds of the consumer has just gone totally out the window. Uh, and so you combine the supply and the the volatility of the supply and then that demand. And then in the past two years, you throw in the pandemic, which has crushed supply chains. And that's where, you know, we've been positioned really well. We being Eden Green has been positioned really well, which is what we, we want to bring the produce right next door, but at a scale that can feed everyone. Right. right. So yeah. as far as that whole pandemic and kind of crushing the supply chain, I mean, most people kind of picture, you know, the container ships having issues of factories mm-hmm. shutting down or whatever, but they think farming though, it all takes place outside and yeah. you know, cause you got to grow plants outside or in greenhouses or something like that. Mm-hmm. So what have been those like huge effects that the whole pandemic thing have caused and what is Eden green kind of doing to push that along to solve the problem. Yeah. So the pandemic has really highlighted two issues. One is a labor supply, right? So when you've got a limited movement by 
by definite transient labor based on based on seasons right if you look at a farm and you people see the people that are coming in to work the farm either on a planting or harvesting it's very migrant right it's just based on seasons well now you have limited movement so you've got a lack of workers on the farm but even more than that is getting things from the farm to the store so not a lot of people know this but uh, 25% of all produce in the United States comes from one place, which is the Central Valley in California. 90% of all lettuce comes from one specific valley, the Salinas Valley in California. So, I mean, if you can imagine, and we don't think about lettuce, it's just kind of a whatever, but it goes on everything we use like and eat, like salads, but even like garnishes, um, you know, uh, hamburgers, you know, your Subway sandwiches, all those require lettuce. Well, they're all coming from one place. And when you have less truckers and uh, you've seen this decline, I don't know, I mean, you're, you're, some of your folks uh, listening might be in the transportation industry, but there was this, when the pandemic hit, the supply of trucks actually went down because the factories stopped. So there's less trucks, but then that was all right when we weren't transporting as much. And then demand started skyrocketing for more stuff at home, right? Cooking at home, less institutional, like in restaurants and hospitality and more just in grocery stores. So then, and then eating out, uh, you started to see a real demand for trucks. Well, there were none to be found. Uh, So you don't have any truckers, you don't have any trucks. And you got all this food sitting in one place in California trying to get across the country. That's a real problem. Uh, and we don't see that uh, supply chain problem uh, diminishing anytime soon. Uh, it's, it's continuing to unfold. Uh, there's, there's not going to be, I don't think it'll, it will be the same as pre-pandemic in terms of the price uh, to ship uh, some goods across country uh, as well as the, uh, as just as well as the consistency, honestly. So in our industry, not just in our industry, but industry-wide, you've seen a 400% increase in the cost of transportation and shipping. I don't know about you or your listeners, but 400% increase in anything on a cost for a business is crushing. 400% increase of shipping when it comes to a penny industry like leafy greens is devastating. So uh, of all the things they're worried about in the Salinas Valley, and I've talked to farmers out there, uh, of all the things they're worried about, they're less concerned about water, which is a real concern. They're less concerned about labor, which is also a real concern. Those are like 2A and 2B. Number one is transportation shipping by far. Now, unfortunately, whenever the government gets involved in anything, it tends to make a bit of a mess of things. And over the last probably 20, 30 years, we've undergone this cultural shift where you know, fad diets have come into play and certainly a lot of, you know, vegetables people now eat, not because they like them, but because it's part of a healthy lifestyle. Now, if we take the shepherd, you may as well be talking about buying dresses because it's not a big lettuce consumer, are you? That's Except true. on your burger, if you no, don't pull it off. No, I pull it off the burger. But, <laughs> yeah. but if we don't have a problem with the production in terms of agriculture and our issue is actually the bottleneck in terms of distribution. What do you see as a solution? Because surely this problem is only going to get worse as the population increases and, you know, the red tape surrounding distribution in this country is kind of very unnecessary in the food industry. I mean, it's not just, you know, agriculture. 
there's a lot of different food products where the price is either artificially boosted up for various reasons, import, export tariffs, whatever. But how do we, at the very base core of agriculture, things which men have been eating for you know hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years, how do we get around this issue? Because even if we had enough food to feed everybody on the face of the planet, if we can't distribute it, then it's no use. So how do we get around this issue? Yeah, so that's, I mean, that's the thing that that we at Eating Green are actually trying to solve. So you either solve it on the supply side or you solve it on the demand side, right? So as now the shepherd might not eat a lot of greens, but uh, most people, there's a rise in, uh, in the demand for leafy greens. There's a rise for demand in uh, vegetable or, you know, like soy or, uh, you know, those types of alternative uh, crops, those uh, like impossible foods, right? So you have vegetarian based uh, alternatives to meat. Uh, and then finally, there's, we've seen a, uh, a 2x increase in the demand for locally grown foods. They want to know where their food's coming from. So, and you're correct, population is rising and uh, contrary to popular belief, urban populations are rising, right? So you either cut down on the demand, which is not happening, or you increase the supply as well as the geography of the supply, right? So uh, the way Eden Green's solving for that is we're actually moving the supply closer to the distribution points and closer to the actual consumers. So uh, just I'll just talk in terms of lettuce because it's something recognizable. Um, lettuce for a field of lettuce, uh, you call it um, 40 acres of lettuce uh, to produce, 40 to 50 acres to produce, call it 2 million pounds of, of lettuce per year. Um, you need, one, you need 40 to 50 acres. And two, you need close to uh, a million gallons of water wasted a year. Yes, yeah. that's correct. Okay. But when you say wasted, yeah, I'm, it's not, I'm, it's not, not re- watering not re- the lettuce. Well, not reusing. That's not including, it's, that's not including mm. the water mm. that the lettuce is drinking to grow. Mm. It's wow. just waste. Yeah. So how does that work? How, how does the lettuce waste the water or the because farmer waste you, the water? So when you water, when you water a field, there's evaporation, right? Uh, there's runoff. So it doesn't just sit there and it's, 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 uh, the water and the nutrients in there aren't uh, absorbed optimally, right? So there's a lot of runoff, uh, and and you know those those two right there, evaporation and, and runoff, are the biggest wasters of water, right? And then you're not watering; you're watering the whole field. Well, the plant only takes up if you put all the surface area of the plant into and just put it all together next to each other, you would only take up probably one eighth of the field. So you're watering another seven eighths of the field, which is sort of, you know, it's in between, right? But it's, uh, but it's, it's not going necessarily to the plant. So uh, just call it 50 acres. 50 acres of uh, of acreage of conventional farming uh, wastes around a million gallons of water, and then you're not you're not even including. Okay, what's the diesel to run those tractors? How many people do you have uh, have to employ to pick those under what conditions? And then how many harvests can you get? You can probably get four, four, maybe six harvests a year, depending on, on what you're doing. So compare that to ours. So eating green, 50 acres of conventional farming equals one and a half acres of ours, 
one and a half acres can literally produce 1.8 million pounds of lettuce in a year, uh, 11 to 13 harvests a year. And our, our, that's right. 11 to 13 harvests every 25 to 28 days, we're, we're, we're harvest, we're picking the plants and putting them in, into the system. And then, um, you know, the, the, uh, water waste is equivalent of two households, 90,000 gallons of water. Right. Now, what's the driving force behind Eden Farms? Are you trying to, you know, I guess on a large scale, solve world hunger, or at least here in the United States, solve the, you know, production and yeah. distribution issue? And if you are going to do that, is, does this mean that you're going to try and expand Eden mm-hmm. widely, or are you going to try and get traditional farmers to take up your methods? So, so the, the vision of Eden Green is to really change the way that we're distributing nutritious, local, accessible greens, right? And make it, make it affordable for everyone. Right now, a lot of our peers are focused on the whole foods of the world, right? Really high-end stuff. Well, most of the folks want to eat nutritiously. They just can't. Like, it's just too expensive, and so we want to change that equation. We want to say, hey, there shouldn't be a cost barrier or a taste barrier to you for you to get nutritious greens year round. Uh, and, and so uh, that, that's what we're doing. And the way that we solve for that is we want to create a mesh network of greenhouses that are all around the United States in and around urban areas uh, so that that way everyone has accessibility to what we call it like nationally local greens, right? So if you're with, it doesn't matter whether you're in Atlanta or Dallas, Houston, Portland, Seattle, Chicago, New York, you ought to have one of these within three to 400 miles of, of where you are, which is considered locally grown. In yeah. fact, our, you know, our facilities right now here in Texas are located across the street I mean, I can see it from our offices across the street from a Walmart distribution center. Right. Now, you mentioned so, irrigation briefly. Mm-hmm. Now, I know a lot of the innovation in uh, irrigation has come over the last kind of 10, 15 years with regard to private enterprise and growing marijuana because obviously they're trying sure. to get as much bang for the buck. And that's really where I'd heard the term hydroponics before. Right. Can you explain for our listeners the premise of what, exactly what hydroponics is and how that yeah. irrigation kind of system works differently to what is currently used on mass? Yeah. So, so irrigation as it stands right now is you're watering a field full of soil, right? And uh, you can have inputs into the soil. You can have various fertilizers, uh, but there are also inputs that you don't want in the soil that you can't control, like airborne pollution, like runoff from surrounding farms, like pests, and then the appropriate pesticides to kill the pests, right? Um, you've got all sorts of things that you cannot control there. Um, and then obviously around and above the field are seasonal weather patterns, uh, whether it's extreme heat, hail, wind, rain, whatever, and whatever comes in the rain. So hydroponics uh, takes all of those variables and tries to control them. So hydroponics is uh, it really what it's, it's hydro, it's water. So you're, you're growing plants in water. So there are various types of hydroponics, but all the hydroponics basically grow plants in a uh, what's called a grow medium. And it could be uh, one of 
the most common type of grow medium is actually called rock wool. It's exactly like it sounds. It's rock heated to over a thousand degrees, spun into like a wool type, cotton candy type con consistency. And then you plant a seed in there. Then once you plant a seed in there, then you put wa nutrient rich water through it and it grows into a seedling and then into a full plant. That's the basic of hydroponics. Now, is right? the water you, reused on that? So in so our system, waste, yes, yeah. water is mm -hmm. water is reused, and that's how we waste so little. Right. Uh, because the, the water that we take in is purified and filtered, and then uh, nutrients are put in it, organic nutrients are put in it. Uh, it's allowed to again go through the system, and then we have what's called a closed loop. So once it goes through the system, comes back, we filter it uh, and make sure it's clean, and then we put more nutrients in, into it, and then it goes all over again, right? So that is that is the basics of our system. You can put in almost any water into our system; it gets cleaned, and then it enters this closed loop uh, that that constantly feeds and nourishes our plants. So you have water running over the roots, uh, which then new, new, you know the nutrients in the water then uh, feed the plant, and then the plant grows in that little medium. That's hydroponics in a nutshell. So I'm picturing this that you could do it indoors, right? I mean, you don't That's necessarily have to take up big fields. So you could, no. in theory, like that giant building behind you. Uh, apparently, this episode of the podcast is it's sponsored by Chase, Chase Bank. Bank. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because yeah, Chase is like, you know, getting all this free advertisement. Yeah. So uh, yeah. good for them. But in theory, though, on top of that Chase Bank building behind you, could you have one of these Eden Green Farm sitting on top of the building. So in theory, yes, um, there's a certain size that makes sense from an economics perspective. So that's one thing that a lot of our peers are not focused on uh, is, is indoor farming tends to be very expensive on the capital expense side. Uh, and because of all the lights uh, that are involved in a warehouse, right? It's very expensive on a CapEx side as well as operating expense. Now you have to run that thing with electricity 24 seven, right? So that's where we have the greenhouse model, where we want to use the, all the sunlight we can possibly use because it's free, and then complement that with grow lights to make sure we have a consistency year-round that's good enough for uh, commercial use and for sale. Because there, the WalMarts of the world are really concerned about consistency. Le you know, package after package after package has to be a four ounce or a four-inch leaf or something like that, right? So that's where the consistency comes in play with, with lighting. But when you do an indoor grow like that, you are, you are powering all of those lights and those lights are very expensive. Um, so if you look at, um, you know, uh, some of our peers like Aero Farms and, uh, and Bowery and some of the others, their indoor, their CapEx capital expenditure per square foot is in the five and five to $600 range per square foot. Ours is, uh, about a quarter of that. Right. So now I read our whole, sorry, go on. our whole goal is to be economically viable. Like one of these greenhouses is an economic unit unto itself. It's profitable. That's really important. I cannot even underestimate and like understate how overstate how important that is because at the end of the day, if it's not profitable, it's not a business. It's a hobby, right? I don't care how much money you throw at it. You have to be profitable at the end of the day. And so by establishing these greenhouses, we're actually showing our investors like, hey, this is this is going to make money, not 10 years from now, but like as soon as you build this, sell the harvests and you will make money in the black. 
Uh, and so that's what's a, a huge differentiator between us and a lot of the other folks out there. Right. So if I was a farmer and I had a plot of land and somehow Bill Gates hadn't bought it from me yet, and I wanted to switch to a more effective method of farming, would the cost of something like this be prohibitive if I didn't have enough money to kind of set up all this equipment? Because I can understand how you can make more money once it's up and running, if it's a more efficient method of farming and you get better produce and more of it. But for all this equipment, I mean, is the entry point to try and, you know, undertake this type of farming, would there be any type of grants perhaps like a state might give me to set up a better, more environmental friendly method of agriculture? Yeah, so uh, you've, you've hit the nail on the head. The USDA and Department of Ag are keenly interested in helping farmers find alternative ways to farm, right? Uh, to convert a piece of land, which would be a fraction of what they probably already have in conventional farming to one of our greenhouses, uh, is there's capital expenditure involved, uh, but there's a lot of support from the government to help make that happen. Uh, they won't get it 100% you know, subsidized, but uh, you know, to be honest, they're being subsidized right now just to grow what they have, right? So the real issue is how far is that farm away from, from uh, the distribution source and then the customer. And so we're, where we have gotten a lot of interest is actually real estate investors uh, and bigger ones, institutional real estate investors who see our greenhouses as a cash flow play on top of property that are in and around urban areas. So one, they're interested in a profit, but two, they have a community and an environmental and ESG, environmental sustainability and government perspective uh, that is, uh, that's core to their investment thesis. And so they're interested in a, of it because it makes money and it hits some of those ESG components, uh, as well as, uh, you know, as well as a, a new industry that's sitting on top, it, it's sitting on top of. So, you know, we're, we're having, we're having a lot of discussions with real estate investors about putting these on their pieces of property, because is it a little riskier than just a warehouse for Amazon? Yes. But, is it a wholly different value proposition uh, when you're feeding, you know, pumping out close to 2 million pounds of leafy greens out of an acre and a half and feeding tens of thousands of people? Yes, that's a totally different value proposition to them. Right. So I did briefly mention kind of Bill Gates in a joke there, but he has been built, um, buying up a lot of farmland. And, yeah. you know, to be honest, I haven't been researching, you know, what exactly his plans are for that. And I know there's a mm -hmm. few kind of... Uh, different theories as to why he's doing it but do you have any insight is he looking to actually move into this better method of farming on all this land he's bought think, or is there some other reason he's like buying up all this farmland so he's a visionary and i'm sure there's a reason he's buying up the farmland that has directly to do with agriculture but if you notice a lot of his uh if you notice a lot of his recent land purchases have been in and around rivers so he and a lot of other folks that are very, very smart uh, view water as the next oil. Um, so mm -hmm. in years past, we've had wars over the control of oil and petrochemicals. Uh, I think in the future, we will have wars over the control of water. Um, and it doesn't have to be a full out you know, armed conflict. Look right now uh, on the Colorado River, right? We've had our first tier one water restriction uh, in the states of Nevada and New Mexico, I believe, uh, and Arizona. There's, that's no joke. 
Like when you're talking water restrictions, because Lake Mead has been the lowest it's been ever. Uh, and there's no, there's, unless there's a huge, uh, surplus of rain in the next couple of years, it's that, that water level is only going to get further and further down. Um, that's a real issue for these whole states of the union that are fighting over water and the farmers that are all along that and the cattle and the, I mean, you name it and the cities, right. That need that water. Um, that's a real issue. And so that's why Gates and and a lot of other folks are buying land, farmland, but it's either adjacent to, uh, or, or on uh, a major river or tributary. So, you know, it's kind of obvious that your ideal client would be a real estate developer. I mean, they're dealing in land, right? And you've got to have land for this. But are there other types of folks out there that maybe wouldn't think to themselves, well, I'm not the ideal guy for this, but I've also heard you say an acre, an acre and a half, and, you know, I've got five acres. You know, maybe I could do something like this. Do you look into anybody in that level for it? Yeah, we sure do. There are folks who are interested who have the land. Um, I think the challenge for them has been, okay, I have the land. I may have the capital, access to capital to build one of these things. How am I going to sell all this produce, right? So that's where we we have uh, really come to the table and said to these, these folks, hey, if you supply the land and the capital, we will operate it and we'll actually sell the, sell the produce for you. In our world, it's known as offtake. Same as in the energy world, they're called offtake contracts. We'll sell the offtake for you, uh, and we'll help you enjoy the revenue stream. We'll take a you know we'll take a sales fee um, to sell the sell the produce. So that's been a that's been a a welcome message to the folks who are interested in you know one or two of these per se. Um, that's also just as, as interested you know interesting for the institutional investors who want to buy ten or fifteen of these. Uh, or have huge, you know, huge swaths of land they're trying to utilize because they're a non-performing asset up until now, um, and so uh, they don't want to be farmers either. Uh, so the last one is actually growers and farmers. So uh, in this industry, uh, there are labels that you see when you pick up the, you know, you you go to the store and you pick up uh, a bag of lettuce and you see the label there, whoever it is, and they're they're not recognizable. Uh, but one, two. Uh, they have for every, call it 10 acres that they own, they probably contract out another 90 acres of growth to subcontracted farmers, little mom and pops, right? That just have 10 acres here and there. Well, they're not consistent at all, right? They're subject to the same weather pattern volatility, but then they also are smaller operations. And so their consistency levels, quality levels vary, right? So, uh, whereas the buyer, Walmart, and the end consumer wants the same thing every time, the supply is by definition inconsistent because it's a bunch of subcontracted growers. So these larger growers are actually looking at us and saying, hey, can you be our contract grower? Right? Can you pl- supply consistent greens year round at a price we can afford? Oh, and by the way, if you can cut out shipping costs, then we can share in that increased margin. So that's where, that's where uh, a, another channel for us has been, uh, has been actually with growers. Right. Right. Now, um, you mentioned that, you know, there are various states in near crisis, if not already crisis situations regarding 
water supply and I've read recently a lot of the big grants are being offered to universities who can find a method to remove uh, the salt from seawater because if that's finally achieved then obviously all the world's water supply issues are solved but here in Texas I mean we do tend to have a decently plentiful water supply for a state which is hot most of the year but eventually this situation is going to reach us because as the population increases and the demand increases but perhaps the supply isn't increasing we're going to reach that issue here that we can't produce enough agriculture for the number of people we have in the state now in your mind what if we don't change the way we do agriculture how many years do we have left before this becomes an almost irreversible type crisis? I don't know if I'm smart enough to predict how many years we have left, but here's what I do know is on any given summer day in Austin, everyone's looking at the Edwards aquifer and seeing how much water it has. And Austin's just a, you know, a bell cow uh, of, of, how, of the growth of Texas here in Dallas uh, you know, you're seeing, you're seeing growth in the teens, low twenties, something like that. It's ridiculously high. Well, where's the water coming from, right? People are watering their lawns like crazy. I mean, that's the first thing you'll feel is water restrictions when it comes to watering lawns. And we're already, already seeing it right in my neighborhood. You can only water on Wednesday and Saturdays between the hours of 12 and 6am. Right. Uh, that's going to become more and more of an issue. Uh, as people buy more and more houses. Uh, and then, you know, and then people flush toilet water and they use water for everything else. It will become an issue relatively quickly with the, at the rate of growth that Texas is seeing where it's going to be an issue relatively quickly. I would say in the next call it 10 years, yeah, 15 I mean, years. I, I would actually like to get on more water restrictions. So I wouldn't have to mow the grass as much because oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm watering the grass twice a week or whatever. I actually just shut off the sprinkler system because we had all those storms and everything. Mm -hmm. And I figure that's, that's good enough to keep the grass growing for a while. And here we are in October. So it hopefully will go dormant so I can put the lawnmower away for a while, but kind of a agricultural question and i know this isn't your area expertise by any means but kind of going to that grass that wasted land right of all of the grass that we have growing could there be something smaller scale to have people that have lawns and say hey rather than having this lawn that i'm watering just to look at maybe do something on a smaller scale of you know what y'all do yeah, I think one day there will be. Uh, right now, the economies of scale, it's, you know, you follow the, uh, I'll say you follow the Tesla or even the Apple approach of with iPhones, they started really high end and then they worked their way downwards to more affordable models. Same with Tesla. I think that's the way we're working as well is, uh, is we want, you know, we want to be able to feed the masses. Uh, but then if people want to grow their own things, I think there's an avenue and an option for that uh, that's not currently on the market right now. Uh, I know a number of folks who have those tower gardens uh, and those are great for patios or, you know, uh, apartment balconies, if you will, but they're not year round. They're not consistent. Um, and they just don't, they don't, uh, they don't handle uh, what you need to handle to eat year round. Uh, and you can only feed yourselves too. And so how, how many people are actually going to keep up with that with day jobs and kiddos and pets, right? It's just, it's hard. Um, so somewhere in between that, right. The, the, what I would love the answer to be would be a community garden, 
and I've got a couple of friends running those. Uh, but the community gardens again are subject to weather available weather volatility and then volunteer participants, right? Uh, so uh, if if people could sort of band together to per- have a community greenhouse, uh, you know, maybe on an elementary uh, schoolyard that's huge. I don't know about y'all, but our school, you know, our school fields are gigantic and they're rarely used, uh, to, to put a, to, to put a greenhouse on there that can feed the local community, call it a thousand people, I think would be really compelling. Yeah. Now you mentioned horizontal farming. Is that the same as the kind of vertical greenhouse concept? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, um, so there's vertical farming, uh, which is, you know, just not like it sounds eight, like we are 18 to 20 feet tall, but that's usually all indoors. Then you have what's called flat tray greenhouses, flat tray farming, which is one level and it's grown in these, literally in these trays uh, and gutters. Uh, and then you have open field farming, which is also flat. Uh, so we've tried to combine, we have, we have combined the best of indoor farming with verticality along with, uh, along with greenhouses that are usually flat tray. So I'm, I'm almost going back to the whole, you know, elementary school thing, right. And the yeah. open fields or that community garden. I mean, you know, here around the Fort Worth area, it's lots of neighborhoods and there's land that they just don't build houses on and they call right. them green belts, but there's nothing really to look at. It's just empty fields. I could see like HOAs actually employing something other than telling, you know, Susie that she left her trash can out for three days and sends her a letter that they could actually put one of these into some of these neighborhoods. Yeah. So there's a, there's a community, a planned community up in Argyle called harvest and their community is actually centered around a huge community garden. Uh, But it takes planning, right? So I think there's an absolutely an opportunity to retrofit some of these communities that have open space that's uh, relatively unused grass uh, space. So you're not taking away any trees that are already there. It's just open grass that you all, I mean, if your listeners are here in Texas or even beyond on an August day, no one's out there because it's 110 degrees and it's all it is, is dead grass, right? So there's got to be a better use for that without taking away the, 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 beneficial trees and uh, other greenage that that contribute positively to our environment. So I, I think there's absolutely an, uh, uh, a possibility for, for that, a potential for that to happen. Yeah. What do you think the biggest barrier is for, you know, this becoming widespread across the country? I mean, I know people are very reluctant to change, especially when they've been yeah. using methods for, say, methods for thousands of years. But as we've mentioned a number of times, something has to give and we're either going to end up with very severe food rationing or some people aren't going to be able to have access to things mm-hmm. you know they traditionally ate or able to buy with relative ease yeah you know what what's the biggest barrier to this to the adoption of these type of methods on a nationwide scale so i think that you could probably just term it overall in in terms of inertia people just don't want to change uh but if you unpack that inertia is okay well why do they don't want to change well they think it's going to be more work so you know tower gardens great example they're going to have limited adoption because people actually have to grow the greens most people don't want to do that they just want to buy it right um the other the other one is is education right they don't think they don't know what hydroponics is they think it's genetically modified plants that grow magically right using 
all sorts of synthetic fertilizers and whatnot. Couldn't be farther from the truth, but that's what they think. So there's an education piece to it. And then also too, there's, you know, there's financial inertia, like, okay, farmers who are getting subsidies from the government for things that, you know, need to be grown. Don't get me wrong. They need to be grown. And farmers are some of the hardest working people, uh, you know, in this country. Um, but a lot of times they're growing things that they don't really want to be growing, but the government's subsidizing them so well, they might as well be growing it. I don't blame them. So I think you have to change. There's an old saying, like, show me the, show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcomes. Right. Um, and so if you incentivize people to look at alternatives to farming, if you incentivize urban uh, landowners and HOAs and communities to find ways to feed themselves, if you incentivize them with these types of, or grants towards these types of platforms, you'll see different outcomes. There's just the incentive structures all jacked up right now. That's why you're not seeing it. Yeah, I mean, I could see that incentive structure once again, harping on the school districts, right? I mean, yeah. homeowners are paying high taxes on the school districts. Your program is saying, hey, give me the land and, and give me the initial investment to put this up. And they've already got the land. They've already bought it, right? Yeah. And then you turn around and you do all the sales. They take the profits, pump them back in and lower everybody's taxes. And hey, maybe once a month you have like a school farmer's market and at the same time provide education to the kids about how the you know stuff grows and all that yeah. stuff. I mean, it's like a, a triple win all the way around and how more people yeah. haven't tried to run in and grab a hold of that, especially in school districts in Texas. It just makes yeah. perfect sense. And, you know, there's an education piece and I'm not knocking the, the, the school councils or the, you know, or the cities, but this is, this is up to this point been relatively unproven and really expensive technology. And so they don't want to sink government money into something that's so technologically advanced. In fact, that's the opposite MO of government. I mean, they're not going to pursue unless you're DARPA and the De Department of Defense, you're not going to pursue technologically advanced uh, equipment. You're going to go with what you know works. And then your life cycle for those is 50 years, right? You see it in the military all the time. So there's only, you know, there's a handful of elements within the government that are uh, pursuing uh, technologically advanced platforms like this. So then you go downhill to the city governments. They're definitely not talking about that stuff. They're like, okay, what works? What do we know is going to be a return and we won't get fired for or sued if this thing goes south? So I understand that. So there's an education piece and it's, it's an incumbent upon us to prove out um, one, it works Two, it's uh, it's economical, it's cost-effective and three, we actually say what we can do. Yeah. And as I mentioned earlier, a lot of the innovation, especially on a smaller scale has come from, you know, the marijuana industry. I mean, you mm -hmm. only have to go on YouTube and see all the kind of setups people have got, you know, when they are talking about their new systems and, you know, that has allowed for a lot of trial and error, which otherwise money might not have been put in from, you know, the government or universities. And, you know, it, it's quite amazing what somebody can do in their own backyard and what they can grow. But I think until people are pushed to that point where they feel like they have to participate in this, otherwise this is going to have a knock-on effect to their kids and their grandkids. Mm. But I, I don't see what is going to make people suddenly decide, all right, that extra kind of like quarter of an acre I've got, I could be growing something in my backyard. Because like you rightfully said, Eddie, they just want to go to the store and get it off the shelves. Now, yeah. is there a 
perhaps pattern we can replicate in terms of introducing this method of farming into countries where they do struggle you know for a food source there isn't it isn't plentiful it's not a distribution issue it's a production issue yeah. that we can set and say look we've operated this for four or five years there's 20 times as much food for a 20th of the cost yeah and it's great we need to adopt this do we need to do this somewhere else than the united states so people will actually look at this model and see it's working before they take it up yeah you know uh some people are trying it in other countries i will say there's a control factor here in the united states and a rule of law that's really important to understand which is if i and ours is patented here in the us if i take it to a country like china I've got no protection for patent. Like they will steal it in 50 seconds, right? So, uh, so there's a for inventors and innovators and entrepreneurs like myself and the investors that back us. There needs to be a uh, a, a standard rule of law and governmental regulations that allows for uh, for capital to flourish, right? Uh, and then the other thing too is um, infrastructure. Right, like there's so many variables in play, and this is such a new technology. The last thing I want to do is to try to uh, test this out where you have power outages every other week, or you've got inex, you know, you've got inconsistent supply to clean water or remotely clean water. Right, it's one of the reasons our inventors of the technology moved from South Africa to here uh, to bring this technology one to scale, and then two to find investors to commercialize. They weren't getting the infrastructure, the ability, the foundation to scale it there. Uh, and, and investment is just uh, is just uh, more sophisticated here. I would say the last thing, your comment on marijuana is, is, uh, is, is really uh, telling is, again, show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcomes. When people are incentivized that there's so much money in marijuana, they will do anything, including putting up crazy, kits and platforms in their backyard because they're incentivized by the almighty dollar. Again, that's capitalism, right? There needs to be regulation about it. The problem is none of that is consistent. So you never know what you're getting out of those, right? And it's not scalable. So uh, show me the incentives. I'll show you the outcome. I think there are incentives in place or can be put in place uh, once they see, once government and, uh, and larger organizations, nonprofits see our viability, see the economics, uh, and and honestly, taste taste the plants, taste the produce, and and they'll come around. Right. So, I mean, we've talked about lettuce. We've talked about uh, the devil's lettuce. Right. Is there <laughs> anything that you cannot grow in this method? Yeah. So funny. We we say in uh, in our company we grow we grow Audis, not Innies. Um, and so uh, any sort of uh, like deep rooted, uh, potatoes, um, carrots, those type of things that have really deep or woody roots, uh, like bushes, it just doesn't grow well in our system. We can modify and probably have, you know, much bigger cups and be a whole new patent, but we can modify that. And, and we expect to innovate into those types of plants. But for right now, we're really looking at, Hey, where can we make the most impact uh, as any good startup should focus where you can make the most impact with the least amount of money and then expand from there. Uh, and that is, that is leafy greens, it's herbs, it's strawberries, it's tomatoes, things of that nature. Yeah. Now, how do we keep government overreach out of this? Because inevitably 
if there's profit to be made out of it, somebody's going to step in with extra regulation eventually. Yeah. So and actually, I actually welcome the regulation because here's why. Um, when you regulate stuff like this, you get less yahoos out producing whatever they want. That, that the regulation doesn't matter as much when you're producing cups or, you know, microphones that we're talking on. You get a bad review, you know, it's not life or death. You write a one-star review on Amazon. Okay. When it gets to food supply, you best have regulations because what we're seeing now is with the pandemic, people were cutting corners. So you had a rise in E. coli outbreaks, people getting really sick or even dying from E. coli or salmonella outbreaks. Guys, I want regulation for that. I want regulation for stuff that's going in my body and my kid's body. Yeah, I'm all over that. And so we actually, we actually welcome it. Gotcha. Makes total sense. Eddie, it's a fascinating topic. And if uh, people want to find out more about that, how can they reach out to you? How can they find out more about your company, your socials, all that good stuff? Give it, give us the rundown. Sure. So edengreen.com, like garden of edengreen.com. And then our socials are Eden Green Tech on all the socials you can imagine. Uh, And then just reach out. Um, My, my email is uh, eddyb, Eddie B at edengreen.com. It's pretty easy. Great. Hey, thanks so much for taking your time out of, or taking some time out of your day to share this with us. It's fascinating stuff. Uh, maybe there's a farmer listening somewhere that's going to reach out to you and, and put a huge Come greenhouse. On. So, yeah. Hey, and, and if you're in the Dallas Fort Worth area, uh, our R&D facility is located in Cleburne, which is southwest of Fort oh, Worth. Yeah. yeah. Know where that's at. Okay. Cut. Come out, take a tour. Well, yeah. we, we, I was actually thinking that uh, the shepherd and I need to come out, see a facility and take some video and we'll put that up on uh, YouTube and a company and link it into this uh, mm. podcast so people can Bring actually it. see it in action. And yeah. And know, plus Argyle's stuff. right up the road from us too. So it might be kind of interesting yeah. to see when that all, you know, shapes out. We can go check that out. So yeah, absolutely. Great. Well, Happy to give you a, a nickel tour of our uh, forty thousand square foot facility. It's, it's nice. large, and and the best thing is uh, if you can if you can pick it, you can eat it. It's All that right. clean. Cool. Yeah. Well, Very cool. That won't help him. No. 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 no, no, no. Got a beef get, burger tree or something. That's yes. not going to help. Oh, that no, would be we, nice. Yeah. yeah beef yeah. on a vine. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> well, hey Eddie, thanks again, and that will do it for this episode of the Wolf and the Shepherd, and we will catch you on the next one. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Wolf and the Shepherd podcast. If you like what you just heard, we hope you'll pass along our web address, thewolfandtheshepherd.com, to your friends and colleagues. And please leave us a positive review on iTunes when you get a chance. Check us out on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for additional content. Join us next time for another episode of the Wolf and the Shepherd. Ooh.